Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 69. Last week, I covered the concept of Sheol, the man Potiphar, and the role of a cupbearer throughout history. If you missed that episode, you should really go back and give it a listen. This week, I'm starting in Genesis chapter 41, as well as circling back to chapter 38. So let's get started. Before getting into chapter 41, a summary of the chapter is in order. Now, chapter 40 ends with Joseph having interpreted the dreams of both Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and his chief baker. The cupbearer was restored to the royal court while the baker was executed. And, as the last verse says, the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him, at least for a while. Two years later, when Pharaoh had dreams that others could not interpret, the cupbearer remembered Joseph. Pharaoh sent for Joseph, to whom he described his dreams. Joseph explained that God was warning Pharaoh about an imminent famine, well, one that would come after several years of bountiful harvest. Pharaoh recognized the spirit of God in Joseph and made him a governor, of sorts, in Egypt. In fact, he was made Pharaoh's second-in-command, essentially the vizier of Egypt. Pharaoh renamed Joseph and gave him one of his servant's daughters as a wife. Note that the servant's name was Potiphera, only spelled slightly differently from the captain of the guard. More on that in a bit. He also made him responsible for devising a plan to store large amounts of food to prepare the country for the impending famine. During the seven years of plentiful harvest, Joseph worked diligently to ensure that the grain silos... Wait, did they have grain silos? Or did they store it in the pyramids? Just kidding. They just kept the grain in regular storehouses located in the cities near where it was grown. In fact, the harvest yielded so much grain that Joseph stopped keeping a tally of how much was stored. His family life was prospering too, for in the years of bountiful harvest, his wife Azaneth gave birth to two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. The two sons' names translate to the phrases causing to forget and twice fruitful, respectively. Finally, just as Joseph had interpreted, and inevitably, the famines did come. And when they did, the Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of selling the grain back to the Egyptian people. It was apparently a regional famine, as Egypt's neighbors were less prepared and sought to buy the Egyptian grain for their populace too. And in doing so, the Egyptians, and especially the Pharaoh, grew wealthier. Which gets us to the end of chapter 41, and the place in the narrative just before Joseph's loving brothers re-enter the story. So, in 41, there are a couple of topics that warrant our attention. The first is the role that Joseph played in the government, and second is Joseph's new name. First things first. Given the text, it's apparent that Joseph was the second most powerful person in the Egyptian government, only subservient to the pharaoh himself. But the text does not give the official title for this role. Enter modern Egyptologists. They have adopted the title vizier. I'll get to the origin of that word in a minute. But first, the role. Essentially, the vizier, 
and for the sake of efficiency, I'll just use the word. But anyway, the job was somewhat like a chancellor, appointed by the leader to handle the day-to-day administration. Throughout Egypt's history, there were many who served in such roles. Sometimes, especially when the empire was large, there were two such administrators, one for the upper and another for the lower kingdom. And the person occupying the role was sometimes a high-ranking military officer, or a prince from the royal house, or occasionally the high priest, Amun. Amun was the temple complex at Thebes that slowly amassed such wealth that its power came to rival that of the pharaoh. More on that when I cover the history of Egypt. And, very similarly, these viziers would personally amass great power, occasionally eclipsing that of the pharaoh. But eclipses, while noteworthy, are only temporary. So the next question is, where did the term vizier come from? In short, it was borrowed from the later, much later, Muslim governments of the same region. The Muslim office of vizier started with the Persians and quickly spread to the Turks and Arabs, as well as other neighboring societies and regimes. It was part of the administrative government put into place following the Islamic conquest of the region in the late first millennium AD. And similar to what we see in Genesis about the Egyptian government, the vizier represented a buffer level between the royal ruler and the subjects of the kingdom. After all, why would a king need to bore himself with the day-to-day operations? But not only that, the entire country would probably be better off if the empire was run by a chosen professional rather than the firstborn son. A bit of meritocracy in a royal world. Sort of. So, if you ever see Joseph's position referred to as a vizier, know that the title is not biblical and was instead borrowed from the much later Muslim government structure. Moving along, in the chapter, we also see Joseph renamed by the Pharaoh. And what name did the ruler choose? It was, wait for it, Zapnath Pania. Maybe in ancient Egypt it was easier to say than Joseph. But I'm just going to continue to call him Joseph. Sorry, Pharaoh. Not really. So what did this new name mean, at least as understood by the Pharaoh who gave it to him? The Targon Ankalos, a 1st century AD Aramaic translation of the Torah, claims that the name translated to the man to whom mysteries are revealed. And given the story, that certainly makes sense. The Targon Pseudo-Jonathan gives the meaning as one who reveals mysteries, which is essentially the same. Well, except the former acknowledges that one is the messenger for the true revealer, while the latter attributes the revelation to the revealer himself. Yeah, it's a bit nuanced. Josephus claimed the name meant a finder of mysteries. Several translations of the Old Testament have margin and footnotes that reference similar meanings. Jerome took an entirely different route and claimed the name meant savior of the world. Now, I certainly cannot think like a polytheistic pharaoh, but to me, I would have a hard time thinking that the Egyptian ruler would give such a name to a recent parolee. But then again, I'm no Jerome. But what about the meaning in the ancient Egyptian language? Well, modern Egyptologists are not quite certain of the meaning. 
most think that the suffix pania loosely translates to the phrase the life. But George Steindorf, an early 20th century German Egyptologist, offers that it means the God speaks and he lives. And this translation has caught on. And of course, it may have multiple entendres. And one more note about the name. Both the 4th to 2nd centuries BC Septuagint and the 3rd century BC hexaploric versions of the ancient Hebrew text use completely different words for the first part of Joseph's new name than what is assumed to be the original Hebrew. The current theory on the differences in the first name are due to miscopies by prior scribes. And this difference is what is thought to cause the different interpretations by early scholars. Dream Interpreter versus Savior Once again, I'll just continue calling him Joseph, as there's little doubt around this name. Now, and I recognize I'm jumping ahead a couple of chapters, but this is worthy of a note. You cannot help but notice the father of his new wife has a very similar name to the man who purchased him from the Ishmaelites, and this is never fully explained. It could have been a common name, or maybe a title, or possibly, but probably not highly possible, that it was the same man. But if it were, then Joseph would likely have been married to the daughter of the woman responsible for his false imprisonment, assuming, of course, that Potiphar had only one wife. But to be clear, it's highly unlikely, read, not possible, that the two men were one and the same. After all, Joseph's father-in-law's occupation is listed as priest, not captain of the guard. The name Potiphar is thought to be a shortened version of the Egyptian name Potiphira, which translates to English as, He whom Ra gave, or better translated as the phrase, God's gift. But note that this god is the Egyptian god Ra. And one more note, from an outside historical perspective, it's challenging to pinpoint the actual years in which Joseph was in Egypt. According to the Jewish calendar, Joseph was purchased in the year 2216, which in our modern Gregorian calendar makes it the year 1544 BC, and in terms of Egyptian history places it somewhere between the Second Intermediate Period and the New Kingdom. When I cover the history of Egypt, these periods will make more sense. Which brings us to the end of Genesis chapter 41. Before covering the next chapter, I need to circle back to chapter 38, which I skipped to help tell a more linear story of Joseph. And in this chapter is a rather seedy tale that you should read if interested. But I'll just give you the highlights, a rather sanitized version, so that I don't lose my iTunes clean rating. And yes, there are a few passages in that chapter that would certainly put that rating at risk. Judah, who is Jacob's fourth son, finds a wife for himself in the area around Abdullah. She bears him three sons. Judah then finds a wife for his firstborn son, a son named Ir. The wife Judah found was called Tamar. Not too long after they wed, Ir dies because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Then Judah explains to his second son, a lad named Unan, 
that he must follow the laws of leveret marriage. I'll get to the specifics of that concept when I make it to Deuteronomy chapter 25. Essentially, the basic principle is that when brothers reside together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother will marry her and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. Their firstborn son, whom she bears, will be named for the deceased brother, so that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And yes, that's really close to a quote. Essentially, the overriding goal was to keep the name of the deceased brother alive. Back to Genesis 38. Unan manages to find a way in this pre-industrialized, lack-of-medical-understanding world to keep his bride from getting pregnant. His motivation, apparently, or at least implied, is that he did not care for his deceased brother's name to live on. And, in quite the ironic twist, this too was displeasing to God, and Unan would soon find himself dead, too. Judah was exasperated as having lost his two oldest sons and now having a twice-widowed daughter-in-law to support. So he did what was relatively normal and sent her back to her father's house. Judah told her that she should live with her family until his youngest son, a lucky kid named Selah, was old enough to take Tamar as his wife. Judah's unnamed wife dies, and he continues to run the family's sheep herding business. After an appropriate period of mourning, he travels to Timnah to check on his sheep shearers, taking along his friend Hira the Abdulamite. Which gives me two places, Timnah and Abdulam, to cover later in this episode. Tamar disguises herself and gets to know Judah really well. I'll just leave it at that. But Judah wasn't completely innocent, as he agreed to pay for the encounter. Tamar ends up pregnant, and Judah accuses her of being a harlot. Well, that's the word in the King James Version. Both the New Revised Standard and the New International Versions, as you would expect, use more modern words with similar meanings. Judah is furious and wants Tamar executed, but as she's dragged out, she reveals to everyone who the father is and provides the B.C. version of proof. Judah's guilty conscience weighs on him. He relents, and she lives. She gives birth to twin boys who will be named Perez and Zira. Now, in this chapter, there are two other places besides Timnah and Nadulam. There is a place called Kizib the place where Judah's sons are born. But this is its only mention in the Bible, and nothing is known about it in the outside historic record either. So, nothing really to cover there. The next place is a place called Inname, which is apparently close to Timnah. But it too was only mentioned in this chapter, and there is also nothing in the outside historic record. Also, to add to the confusion at least for in-name, there is a general disagreement if the word truly represented a place. The King James Version actually translates the word to English as the adjective open. For example, in verse 14, 
Tamar sat down in an open place in the King James, where in the New Revised Standard and the New International Versions translated it as she sat down at the entrance to a name. Moving along. So the first historic reference that actually has some history to cover in this chapter is Timnah, the place to which Judah traveled to visit the men shearing his sheep. And embedded in this is a different question that I'll quickly explain. How did you shear sheep before electric clippers? Well, simply bronze, and then as technology progressed, iron, razors. It was a messy, strenuous job, especially with a fussy sheep. But on the Timna. Timna was a Philistine city located in Canaan. It was not only mentioned in Genesis, but also in Judges chapter 14, as the home of Samson's wife, Delilah. Modern researchers think it was located at an uncovered site modernly labeled Tel Batash. This tell is located in the Sorek Valley, near Tal Shahar, in the modern country of Israel, just a stone's throw west of Jerusalem. The Tel Batash site was discovered, well, really uncovered, beginning in 1977 by Amiya Mizar, an Israeli archaeologist, and George Kelm, a professor of biblical backgrounds in archaeology at the New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary. From the dig, it's become apparent that the site was probably first inhabited in the Middle Bronze Age, and then continuously inhabited through at least the Greek occupation of the years just slightly BC. There are buildings that are believed to date to the Kingdom of Judah period, specifically the 8th and 7th centuries BC. Nearby are the remains of a Roman road, although it's unclear if the village was occupied at the same time of the Roman occupation. Nothing has been uncovered that shows any sheep shearing, but seriously, that would be an extremely specific find. I also find it interesting that Samson, of all people, traveled to a town known for its haircutting to find a wife that would prove to be his downfall. Remember the old BBC show called Connections? Think of this as that, or maybe simply another case of ironic foreshadowing. Finally, the village is mentioned in Joshua chapter 15 as a place on the border of the tribe of Judah, and Judges chapter 14 mentions the vineyards located there. And that's about all we know of Timnath. And the last place, well, man and place I'll cover in chapter 38, is the so-called man of Adullam, who is also Judah's friend. Hira. And this reference begs the question, where was Abdullam? Well, Abdullam is thought to have been located on a hilltop that overlooks the Ella Valley, the location where David slayed the giant. And this location correlates with Joshua chapter 15, which lists it as being in the hill country. The location is south of the city of Bet Shemesh, once again in the modern country of Israel. This, like Timnath, is west of Jerusalem, and Adullam was located to the south of Timnath. But the three locations, Jerusalem, Timnath, and Abdullah, are all not terribly far from each other. The hill on which the village sat is flat on the top, and given the methods of ancient warfare, having the high ground was advantageous.
So, a good place to locate the village. Apparently, Adullam was a royal Canaanite city. It was positioned near a road, and of course, this meant trade. It was also in this village that Judah, the son of Jacob, came when he left his family and where he befriended a man named Hero, who the text lists as an Abdullamite. So I guess he was a native of the town. Also, he found a wife for himself in the village, a woman who Genesis only identifies as the daughter of Shua. The future king David hid out in caves near Abdullam after being expelled from the city of Gath by King Ashish. 1 Samuel refers to a specific cave of Adullam where David found protection while on the run from King Saul. And as you would expect, there are caves there today, on the hilltop as well as on its northern and eastern slopes. But then again, that shouldn't surprise anyone. Finally, it was at Adullam that Judas Maccabeus went with his band of warriors after returning from the war against the Adumians. And that's about all that's known about this ancient city, and probably as good of a place as any to end the episode. Join me next week when I'll pick up the story of Joseph with the arrival of his brothers in Egypt. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. Doing so helps others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe so you get the episodes as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening, and have a great week.